Good morning, church. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning, so you can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. 1 Peter chapter 1. By way of introduction, I'd like to take just a moment this morning to share something with you all. And, and that is that as I worked through this text this week and began synthesizing these thoughts into a sermon, I started thinking for just a bit on how many churches in this city that this sermon I'm about to preach will be welcomed in. And the reality is, friends, that I, I, I grew up in this city. I, I'd like to think that I know the churches in this city relatively well. But unfortunately, I, I do not think that there are many churches in this city where this sermon I'm about to preach would be welcomed this morning. And, and unfortunately, that's because I do not think that the unbridled truth of this text that we're going to consider would be welcomed in many church. And, and, and listen, I don't actually mean that uh, to demean or put down other churches. What I mean to communicate this morning is that as I reflected on that, I became so incredibly thankful for Midtown Baptist Church. I, I am so grateful that each Lord's Day, when we come and gather together, that the people of Midtown Baptist come together not only ready, but expectant to hear the unvarnished truth of the Word of God. And I say that as one who's normally sitting in one of those seats too, expectant and hopeful to hear the unvarnished truth of the Word of God. So I, just hear me say this morning that I am exceedingly grateful for what God has done here at Midtown Baptist. And this morning, we, we are expectant to hear the Word of the Lord from 1 Peter Chapter 1. We're focusing on verses 3 through 5 this morning. And we turn to this particular text as we make our way through our series on union with Christ. Today we have under consideration the doctrine of regeneration, as Jeff was mentioning a moment ago. That, that is the doctrine of the new birth. If you've been around churches for very long, you, you've likely heard people talk about this idea of being born again. We, we read about it a moment ago from John 3. And here we find Peter talking about it as well. Peter lays out a lot in these few verses that we're going to consider. But the point of what he's saying is this. The reality of regeneration produces a life of joyful worship. That, that's the point of the text. The reality of regeneration produces a life of of joyful worship. And the apostle explains this by making three points in the text. He first says that praise belongs to God. And then the second point of the text is that the power of salvation belongs to God. And the third point is that the preservation of souls belongs to God. So considering the doctrine of regeneration, Peter makes these three points to show what's produced by the experience of regeneration. So, uh, that in mind, let's now look at the text together and see how Peter makes these three points. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Hear the word of the Lord. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the word of the Lord, friends. Let's pray now and ask God's blessing again on our time this morning. Lord, we do come expectant to hear from your word. So, Father, I do pray this morning that you would make your word clear. God, please keep me free from error as I seek to rightly divide your word. And Lord, we ask that you would come this morning and illuminate our minds, God, to see the wonder that you have done in working salvation for your children. God, help us to see the wonder of redemption accomplished and applied. And in coming to grasp the wonder of it, Lord, I pray that you would help us to more deeply and consistently worship you with both our lips and our lives. Do it now, we ask, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. So the first point that Peter makes in this text is that praise belongs to God. Peter, Peter begins with a, a call for praise to be given to God. Uh, although it, it doesn't look much like a call to action in our Bibles. He says, blessed be God. And, and that term blessed can sometimes refer to a state of being, but it can also be a, a word of instruction. And here, Peter intends for it to be taken as a word of instruction. That's why he says, blessed be, instead of blessed is God. Peter is telling his readers that you should bless God. In other words, you should offer praise and thanksgiving to God. In fact, friends, that really is the call of this text this morning. It's the one application that Peter intends for us to make in this text. There are several implications of the doctrine of regeneration, and we're going to consider those in just a few moments. But, but this call to continually offer praise to God is the one action point, if you will, in this text. And, and as we consider Peter's words here, we do well to remember the context into which he's writing, the, the situation of the people that he is writing to. And, and when we consider that, if you've been a part of the men's Bible study recently, you'll know that we've been making our way through this epistle, and each time we, we meet together, we have to recall that the context into which Peter's writing is one of persecution, intense persecution, in fact. He's, he's addressing a people that are in a situation that's rather dire. And, and, and it seems really hopeless. That's why the main point of the book is actually that of hope. Those Peter was writing to, they, they were Christians that had been displaced from their homelands. 
They had been disconnected from relationships. They'd been disconnected from their occupations. They were unsure how they were going to make it in the world. They were totally exposed and vulnerable. For all intents and purposes, they were hopeless. And Peter's first words to them are, praise God, give thanks to God. He says, blessed be God. So you have to wonder if the readers of this letter thought, I'm sorry, Peter, did you get the wrong address? Are you talking to us? But Peter knows precisely who he's addressing. And he reminds them here how a spiritual heart that's been made alive by God responds to God in any and all circumstances. He says that the people of God are to be a people of praise. And this isn't a concept that's, that's new with Peter's writing here. The scriptures are saturated with this call from the earliest parts of the Old Testament right on through the New Testament. The Psalms are replete with it. We can hear it in Psalm 100 in verse 4. There we read, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to God. Bless his name. And Peter here is, is using the same formula that we often hear from the Apostle Paul. You, you can think of uh, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 where Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And the message is crystal clear, friends. In whatever situation God's people find themselves, praise always belongs to God. We are obligated to consciously make much of Him and to express gratitude to God. So let me ask you now, even at this point in the sermon, brothers and sisters, in your conversation with both believers and non-believers, how much is the praise of God on your lips? How natural is it for you to consciously make much of God, but both internally and externally? It's a question that we, we can't get around if we're actually going to respond to this text correctly. We're commanded by God to give Him the praise that He's due. So if you find yourself wanting in this area this area of expressing praise to God, perhaps it's because you aren't meditating enough on what Peter says here about being born again. In fact, that's exactly what this text would lead us to believe. You see, right doctrine always produces right devotion. Yes, we are obligated, according to this text, to give praise to God in every circumstance, But friends, obligation does not remove motivation. And that's what the apostle goes on to explain for us. What is it that motivates Christians to be a people of praise? The text shows us that the reason praise belongs to God is that all power for salvation belongs to God. That's the second point of the text here. Peter gives the motivation for Christians to render praise to God, saying, according to His great mercy, 
He has caused us to be born again. Now, if we're going to understand this morning this text correctly, we must understand the concept of being born again, that concept of regeneration. But in order to do that, we first have to understand what the Bible says about how we come into this world. The Bible says that because of our relationship to Adam, spiritually speaking, we come into the world not alive, but dead. All mankind is born totally incapable of relating to God in a positive way. Romans 5 verse 12 tells us that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, speaking to believers, Paul paints the picture perhaps more clearly when he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So, so it's clear that we are born in a state of defiance and deadness toward God. But not all people remain in that natural state. Praise God. Peter says of believers that God has caused us to be born again or regenerated. But what does this mean to be born again? Well, we confessed a moment ago from our statement of faith the definition of regeneration in short, we understand regeneration to refer to that act of the Holy Spirit which generates a new heart within a person and makes them spiritually alive to God. It's, you can think of it as a spiritual heart transplant. But sometimes with a concept like this, it's more helpful to describe it rather than define it. So if you'll allow me, to draw just for a moment on my own experience of regeneration, I'd like to, to do that in order to give you a sense of uh, the doctrine of regeneration. Like all others, before coming to Christ, I, I had really no interest in submitting to God and His law. When I was growing up, uh, my interactions with, with Christians, I, I was always puzzled by why they would struggle as they did to please and obey God. I, you know, I, I might try for a little while to obey God, but after not much time, I would really lose interest, and I would give up, thinking, ah, this just isn't worth it. You, you know, it's, it's really a lot more fun and a lot more freeing just to live for myself. And I mean, I would not have articulated it to you at the time that way, but that's in truth what I was saying. It's just more fun to live for myself. And I couldn't make sense of this idea of living your life, orienting your life around another. I just couldn't wrap my brain around why people would center their lives on, on, on God. And, and, on a being that we couldn't even see for Pete's sakes. <laughs> I really struggled with that. And, and I found within myself, even at the moments when I would try to obey, this inability to obey God. But then, by God's grace, one day he, he made me alive by his Holy Spirit. 
And all of a sudden, I began to have these new desires in my life. Now, please understand, I, I still struggled with sin and fleshly, natural desires, certainly. But now there were these, these new desires within me, foreign desires that, that I hadn't known before. And slowly but surely, these new desires began to, well, win me over. And there was this power, this, this energy in me that was battling against my natural desires in a way that I hadn't ever known before. And, and so, since that point, day by day, that battle has been waging war within me. There's been a, a battle going on within me against my natural desires, where the, the spiritual power of the Holy Spirit is actually drawing me toward God and away from sin. And please know, there are days where there's more victory in the battle than others. But, but that's just the thing. There's, there's always a battle. There's, there's always a struggle. And these desires to please God and submit to His law won't leave me alone. That there's never a full retreat from the battlefield of my heart. Now, there are certainly different versions of how this takes place in different people's lives. But, but this is what it is to experience the new birth, friends. To come alive to new desires and new abilities to please God by the power of the Holy Spirit at work within you. And the reason that Peter calls for people to render worship to God in this text is because it is God and God alone who has the power to give this new birth. He says that God the Father has caused us to be born again. Now pay close attention. Look there at the verse. Pay close attention to who is active and who is passive in that phrase. If you pay attention, you'll see that God is the only actor. And we are wholly passive in, the, in that phrase. Meaning we are wholly passive in the matter of regeneration. Brothers and sisters, contrary to much popular teaching, we play no more a role in our spiritual birth than we do in our physical birth. And I'd like for you just to take just one second to think about that. How much did you contribute to your spiritual birth? If you meditate on it, but for a moment, you'll realize that you contributed nothing to your physical birth. And that's exactly how much you contribute to your spiritual life. You see, there's a reason, friends, that, that the Bible draws that particular parallel between physical birth and spiritual birth. It's to highlight our total inability to do anything about our natural relationship to God. That's also why Peter says that it's according to his great mercy that he has caused us to be born again. It is not according to his foreknowledge about who would choose to have spiritual life. There are several theological issues with that idea. 
It is not according to works of righteousness. It is not even according to some level of knowledge that one has about Jesus Christ. No, it is according to God's mercy in it alone that He causes us to be born again. This is why that great theologian Jonathan Edwards is quoted as having said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. And it's also why a favorite artist of mine penned the lyric, I was stuck, didn't choose to be found. Tell me, when's the last time you've seen a dead man moving around? The Bible is completely clear that we are unable to make ourselves alive spiritually. And any teaching that mingles any effort of man in salvation for one reason or another has failed to properly appreciate the severity of the natural state of humanity. To credit spiritual life to anything other than the sheer mercy of God is is frankly an affront to God, friends. It, It lifts up man and it minimizes the sovereign mercy of God. Now, it would be totally legitimate to ask, well, why is it so merciful of God to do this? Especially if you're here this morning and you haven't experienced the new birth, you might be thinking, what's so merciful about God giving this new birth to his children? My life seems rather nice. Why do I need a new one, a new spiritual one? Friends, the answer to that question is that if we remain spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, then we remain under the guilt for those trespasses and sins. As I said a moment ago, under the representative structure that God has set up in our world, Adam's sin brought death upon humanity. But that death is only the result of the state of sinfulness that we all plunged into in Adam. And God, being just and righteous, cannot allow sins against Him and His holy nature to go unpunished. So, those who are left in the natural state, the state brought upon humanity through our first representative head, those left in that state will not only never know what it is to walk with God in peace and loving fellowship in this life, they will go into eternity knowing nothing of God's mercy, but only His righteous, never-ending punishment for sins. And in reality, friends, this is what all humanity deserves. But according to His great mercy, you see, God the Father has sent a second, a better representative head in the Lord Jesus. And in the Lord Jesus, God has worked not only righteousness for His children, for those united to Christ. He's worked not only righteousness, but He has worked life. This is what Peter means when he says we've been, look at the text, born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's not only that God simply says to us in His Word that those united to Christ by faith will have eternal life. No, God displays for us 
He displays for humanity in the flesh and blood person of the Lord Jesus that he has the power to take what is dead and give it life. And so, all of those who are looking to the the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus as their payment for their sins and the promise of spiritual life can have total confidence that God has the power to grant spiritual life and that it is alone His mercy by which He does it. That we've been born again to a living hope. And he means that we've been born to a a sure and certain expectation. An expectation of life with God in heaven. That's what Peter goes on to tell us about. He says regeneration, this new life that God grants uh, those who are his, has an eternal trajectory to it. This new life with God doesn't stop at the point of physical death. No, it stretches into Eternity. And and it's that eternal state that Peter now draws our attention to in order to continue his call that we would worship God. The third point of the text is that the preservation of souls belongs to God. The apostle tells us that we are born again to a living hope in verse 3. And that living hope is the inheritance of verse 4. He says it's an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, if you, if you notice, when you look at the text there, Peter is not so much emphasizing what life in eternity future will, will look like or feel like, so much as he's emphasizing the fixed nature of it. What I mean is that Peter's providing confidence for those who've been regenerated by the power of God that the same power that saved you will sustain you. That's why he uses such definitive language here. The idea is that if you've been born again, then you're united to Christ in His resurrected life. That's what Romans chapter 6 and verse 5 says teaches us, saying, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. And His resurrection proves that He has the authority to not only take up, but secure eternal life. Nothing and no one, you see, can endanger that eternal life. This is what the Apostle Paul means when he writes, In Romans, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And we know that it's completely up to God to sustain your spiritual life to the point of obtaining that eternal inheritance because of the way Peter talks about it even here. Look at the passive and the active verb tenses that Peter uses in verse 5. He says of those who've been regenerated that we are by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be received in the last time. Friends, this is important. 
Because I, I know that some really struggle with confidence in their ultimate salvation. Some are tempted to wonder, did I say all of the words right in my salvation prayer? Can God really love me? Or some might be tempted to wonder, I know, in fact, that some lie in bed thinking at night, I know if I do that one more time, God's just going to be done with me. And if that's you, Please, hear the text of Scripture saying to you this morning that you are not the guard of your eternal destiny. God is. Now to be sure, we do see in verse 5 that faith is the mechanism that God has appointed to secure those who belong to Him. So, So faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ must be present to have confidence in your eternal inheritance. Yet, notice again, this is not a self-wrought faith. It is still God's power guarding us using the faith that He has given. Therefore, we can be just as confident in God's mercy to preserve our souls as we can be in His mercy to give life to our souls, friends. Now, I'd like to spend some time at this point thinking about some implications of God granting the new birth to us. And when I say implications, I do mean implications. Implications are are what logically follow from some cause. And as we think through several of these doctrines in our our series on union with Christ, uh, you'll likely find that There's a myriad of ways that these affect our lives, yet it'd be difficult to give a a list of action items to go do in response to some of these truths. And take our text here, for instance. There is an application that Peter wants us to make from this text, and we've already discussed it. We are commanded here to give praise to God. But it would be an overstep on my part to say that this text actually places any other demand on you. Nonetheless, there are several things that that flow from this text that should be characteristic of the Christian life. So so I want to end our time this morning discussing what consistently follows from the experience of regeneration. And one of these so clearly follows from the idea of God's sovereignty in in, in regeneration that we don't even get out of the chapter before Peter draws our attention to it. And that is the necessity of love for others. Just a few verses down, look in verses 22 and 23 of this first chapter of the epistle. Peter says this in verse 22 and 23, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you've been born again. So we find that the new birth is cause for you to commit to loving others. And why? Well, it's simply the overflow of having received the unfathomable love of God, who not only initiates relationships with us, but sustains and empowers us by His 
infinite love. The scriptures are clear that when one comes to know the love of God, they cannot help but express that love to others. Perhaps the, the most succinct of all the verses on this topic is 1 John uh, chapter 4 and verse 19 where we read, For we love because He first loved us. It's that simple. In response to the love of God poured out on us in the act of regeneration, friends, we love others. God has loved us with a, a supernatural love. Even as we were His enemies and haters of God. He made us alive by His love. And because of the overwhelming, unmerited nature of that love, which overcame our active rejection of it, we are then enabled and compelled even to love those around us. It's, it's an implication of this doctrine of regeneration, you see. Another implication which follows from this doctrine is that the Christian will know a profound humility that's unknown to the rest of the world. A right understanding of regeneration makes it plain that, that we have nothing to boast about in ourselves. We do stand confident that we are indeed loved by God and made alive by the power of the resurrection and secure in our glorious inheritance. Yet we know there's nothing that we did to make this possible. There's nothing innate about us that makes this possible. There's nothing we've, we've done or thought or believed that's made the blessings of eternal life fall to us rather than another. The experience of, of the new birth and the plain reading of Scripture should leave us the most humble people in the world. Because our status and our, our hope is not dependent on our performance in the world. Our hope, friends, is accomplished and secured independent of us and only then applied to us. And humility... Humility is something that stands out as completely odd in our world. And so it's a very noticeable implication of regeneration because it's so unnatural to our world. The most natural thing in our world for people to do is to avoid any bad thoughts about themselves. But the work of God's regeneration in our lives enables us to acknowledge the worst parts about who we are, knowing that these things have no effect on our relationship to God or our eternal inheritance. This is why we sang the lyric a little while ago, Oh, how strange and divine. I can sing, all is mine. Yet not I, but Christ in me. So in closing this morning, just let me encourage you to, to think, to dwell, to meditate, brothers and sisters, on the way that the Bible describes our being born again. Think deeply on it. Think long on it. Because as we 
more clearly understand what the Bible says about our regeneration, about our new birth, we're led to offer praise to God from our lips. And we're, we're also then compelled to live a life of worship that looks like love and humility. Let me pray for us and ask the Lord to do just that. Father God, we are so grateful for the clarity of your word and for the wonder of regeneration that's made clear to us in your word. God, I, I do pray that you would help us to think clearly about what has been done to us in receiving spiritual life. God, and in meditating long on that, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be transformed into those who more freely, more seriously love others. I pray that you would transform us into those who are remarkably humble because we have all that we need, not because of anything we've done, rather what's been done for us in Christ. And we ask it all in His name. Amen.